recently, guys, we've been, as, as I assume most of us know, we've been working through First Peter. And last weekend, Sam, well, he didn't do it, but he wrote up a sermon which was really focused around submission. I'm sure most of us will probably remember that. Now, I'm going to be continuing on First, first Peter in chapter 3. I'm going to be finishing off that chapter. And what I'm going to be looking at is relationships. And the cool thing about submission and relationships is they are really intimately connected. They are correlated. And so we get to see how relationships are kind of viewed by Peter. And Peter places such a strong emphasis on relationships in the passage we're about to look at. And it's really important for us because I feel like we've just come out of a period of time where relationships have been tough. I'm sure everyone can agree with that. Uh, you know, we, we physically just maintaining relationships, engaging with people, uh, yeah, just finding time, uh, not just finding time, but finding uh, the le legal re requirements to meet up has been tough, guys. And now that we are in the, in, you know, on the verge of going into a, uh, going into like a new phase of the coronavirus restrictions, where we can finally meet up as a group I feel like it's a great idea to take a look at what godly relationships look like because it's been a while guys and maybe just maybe we need a, a a little bit of a reminder of how important it is so in this passage peter looks at relationships from a godly perspective and a relationship from an ungodly perspective and the difference in approaches and these differences in approaches uh, will make up the title of my sermon, which is a grudge or a grace-based relationship. And we'll dig into that a bit more. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 22. If you don't have your Bibles, shame on you, but I have it on my screen anyway. So it says... Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever, you, for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And it continues on. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you would suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear the threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you or against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, it, if, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, 
when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It had in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at, the, is, and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. How about we say a quick prayer before we dig into this and, uh, and, and see what Peter is trying to say about all, all this relational stuff. So bow your heads, please. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you so much that we have your word, Lord, to, uh, to guide us uh, through what has been a tough period of time, Lord. But I feel like you are good, you are, you are faithful, Lord, and you have truly delivered us, Lord. And it's so exciting knowing that in, in just a week's time, Lord, we are going to be back together. Uh, we're going to be able to fellowship, Lord. And like Trevor talked about, it's going to be a celebration, Lord. And I'm just overjoyed knowing that through all this, your hands has never stopped working, Lord. And I pray, Lord, as I, as I talk about Peter's words, Lord, in this letter, uh, I can do an adequate job in, in transcribing the meaning behind it, Lord, and, and helping people understand exactly what Peter and what you intend for people to understand about relationships, Lord. I pray this in your precious name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, points. I have three pretty easy points, really. And that is relationships with the insiders, relationships with outsiders, and doing it God's way through Jesus. And to make it extra easy for anyone who might struggle to keep up, I've made it so that each point follows the, the, the order on which it, it pops up in the, I had a best describe it, the sections of the passage. So the first one will go from verse 8 to 12, the second verse 13 to 16, and then the final one will be verse 17 to 22. And slowly but surely, guys, we're going to make our way through all of those passages because uh, there is a whole lot there. Uh, when I first looked at this, uh, this scripture, I was like, wow, what do I do here? Sam told me it was on unity. I'm like, okay, well, unity, I can work with unity, but there's so much more that goes deeper than just unity. And it was a little bit intimidating, but I feel like I've done a good job. I'm about to show you guys, hopefully, what Peter is talking about. So before we even look at the first point properly, it's good to have a little bit of context about who Peter is writing to. So the first church or the churches that Peter is writing to, they're suffering persecution. It's, it's tough. Okay, it's not easy being a Christian for these people. Their Greek and uh, Roman neighbors are giving them a hard time, right? And so Peter's addressing this in an interesting way, right? Because he's addressing it through relationships. He's addressing it through a recognition that unity is most important in a tough time, which in itself is a lesson on its own, right? But we can look even a little bit deeper. So in verse 8, it says, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So straight away, Peter opens up with a command. He says, Be be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, be humble. 
And the interesting thing about each of these qualities is they are all centered around being outwardly focused, right? It's all centered around you helping other people. And that's really the purpose of this section for, for, for Peter and trying to help these people through a rough time of persecution. Like I said earlier, it's interesting that Peter would prioritize relationships. I mean, if I'm being persecuted right now, relationships wouldn't be the first thing to come into my mind. The first thing that will come into my mind is how do I defend myself? Okay. How do I prevent the persecution happening? How do I weasel out of it? But Peter's saying, no, no, no. We want to look at relationships because he knows there's a fundamental truth in the human heart. And that fundamental truth is when people start to have a hard time and, and you know, uh, start to feel a little bit of pressure and feel some persecution, the tendency, the tendency for the human nature is it becomes selfish. People turn inward, right? And we know this from firsthand. Uh, we all got to witness this as our society had to, had to deal with this crippling pandemic. And we got to see people literally fighting over toilet paper, okay? We got to see people it's just arguing in front of stores, hoarding essential goods. Because that's the human nature. Right? It's human nature to become egocentric. And not just in like persecution, right? But even in the best of times. People are selfish. And Peter knows this. And he's saying, hey, you guys have to really focus on relationships. Because if you're not careful, you are going to fall into that temptation. Because... When you think about our society, right? Our society is heavily individualistic. Oh my goodness, I didn't say that properly. We're all about ourselves, okay? It's all about focusing on what makes me happy. And society will tell you that everything you do should be focused around what benefits you. You are the center of your universe. And... What Peter's doing here is completely blowing out of the water. He's completely saying, hey, this, it, it, it just doesn't work, right? You, you can't have that kind of mentality in the church. Because as soon as you become a Christian, a disciple, you come from the world where that's okay. That's a normal mentality to have. And you come into an environment where suddenly it's a group mentality. Suddenly, it's about how do I serve other people, which is radically different, radically different to what the world says is normal. A, a practical way to, to visualize it, for me at least, is, oh, if you guys don't know already, I'm a swimming teacher. And so I'll often teach my kids about the concept of hypothermia, right? If you don't know what hypothermia is, um, it's, it's when it's, you know, your body's really cold, it's losing heat, and it's shutting down, essentially. And if you don't, you know, if you don't treat it quickly, okay, it can be, it can be fatal. But the way hypothermia works is because the, the body's coming under pressure, okay, it redirects blood flow to internal organs. And so anything which is non-essential, like, you know, your arms, your legs, anything which, you know, isn't essential for surviving, loses blood, okay? And it all goes rushing into your torso, which has, you know, your heart, your lungs, all that really good stuff that you want to protect. I feel like sometimes we have spiritual hypothermia where we redirect everything 
as soon as there's a little bit of discomfort, right? And it's, it's dangerous because, I mean, I know I, I've used the example of hypothermia in a physical body, but Paul describes the church as a body as well, right? And we can't survive as a body if, you know, the larger, the larger number of people want to suddenly start cutting away the limbs, all right, to protect self. It's just not the way it works to be cutting social ties. And that's what Peter is really stressing here. Self-preservation, ironically, leads to destruction. It leads to selfishness. So the problem with this is suddenly our approach to relationships become very conditional or contractual. And by contractual, I mean, I do this in exchange, I get this back. It's not really how a Christian relationship is meant to work. In the world, that's how it's meant to work. But for Christianity, for the teachings of Jesus, it is actually extremely different. I mean, if you look at verse 9, it says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. That's exactly what the world promotes. Eye for an eye. Where, you know, I'm going to give as good as I take. And it's so easy for us to adopt that attitude because we are part of that world. And suddenly it turns into this, okay, I'm only going to initiate with people who initiate with me. I'm only going to love people who are willing to love me back. I'm only going to give to people who I receive from. And you know what? I'm, if, if that person ignores me, I'm going to ignore them back. It spirals quickly because we know we know that's part of our human nature. I tell you what, Peter knows it as well. That's why he's addressing it here. Because Jesus' teachings are entirely different. Jesus, on the Sermon of the Mount, he teaches us to love our enemies. Which is not contractual at all. That's, that's genuine relationship. That's genuine love. You guys don't have to turn there because I have it on my screen. But in Matthew 5, uh, verse 43 to 48, it says, you, he you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son, he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if that doesn't make you squirm a little bit, oof, maybe you didn't quite comprehend it. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It is a high, high calling. In verse 46 and 47, Jesus makes it clear that there are only two ways to approach in relationships. God's way or the world's way. And so we as followers of Christ are supposed to be distinguished in our relationships. And God calls us to be different, loving for the sake of loving, regardless 
of whether you are being loved to or being persecuted or whatever the scenario may be. It's about disregarding what you're getting back and loving for the sake of love. Because, well, I mean, that's, that's obviously challenging, right? That's not easy to do. And so when in verse 48, Jesus really hits, hits us with a, a strong jab or uppercut where he says, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But I think this is useful for us in terms of relationships because Jesus and Peter are making the same point that our relationship with other people should have the same characteristics instilled in it as our relationship with God. Right? They should play off each other. Because if it's not playing off God, it's playing off the world. And when we really think about it, what is our relationship with God based on? Honestly, our relationship with God is purely dictated by his grace. We don't deserve anything. We fall short in every category. We deserve death. We were enemies of God. But by God's grace, we enter his household and we are sons and daughters. So if we have that attitude or if we recognize our relationship with God being based on grace, then suddenly our relationships with everyone else aren't so difficult because suddenly we gain a grace-based approach to relationships, which is important. Because it allows us to embrace people regardless of difference, right? It allows us to it allows us to move past everything. Oh, someone's going on to meet you. And and it's just move past everything. But unfortunately, we commonly we commonly allow us allow ourselves to have our relationships dictated by a different factor, which isn't God. And that factor, of course, is pride. And that pride has this constant craving, craving for self-gratification. And we know that in our relationship with, with God, we don't get gratified at all because we don't deserve any of it. And that's why we look for different avenues. And that's why sometimes we can have a grudge-based approach to relationship. So we have that contrast between grace-based and grudge-based. But both both are a feasible way to approach relationships, but only one, which is the grace-based, spoiler, allows us to have a spiritually healthy dynamic within the church. So what's the result from having a grace-based relationship? So if you look in verse 11 uh, of, of, the, of the Peter scripture, it talks about we inherit inherit a blessing, which is an interesting concept, right? I mean, the idea of inheriting stuff comes up multiple times in the Bible. But what is Peter talking about right here? Because initially when I read it, I was like, I have no idea what he's talking about. And so as I researched deep into it and I, I read First Peter as a whole, it becomes very apparent that Peter's using several different techniques to help the Christians he's writing to understand that they are indeed God's chosen people. 
And he does this because by he does this by making several references to the Old Testament throughout his entire letter. Uh, he says the holy people. Uh, he calls uh, these Christians the holy people in the wilderness, the new Exodus and Passover, the covenant, part of the new covenant. He says they are part of the new temple. He also he also calls them a kingdom of priests. Because the, these these Christians that that Peter is writing to. They are Jewish Christians. These are Gentile Christians. And so in their minds, it's still a bit fuzzy. Like, am I God's chosen people or am I not? But Peter is helping them see that, yes, indeed, they are. And not only are they God's chosen people, but so are we. And that's why I, I feel like when Peter says we may inherit a blessing, Peter is making a strong connection to the fact that we are part of God's household because that's where the connotation of love, that's where the association of inheriting stuff comes from. We are sons and daughters. We have an inheritance to look forward to, which is yeah, a pretty sweet deal. That's pretty awesome considering our relationship with God is based on grace, considering we don't deserve it. And there's also additional uh, references to the Old Testament, Testament which I think is pretty cool. In, in 1 Peter um, 3, 9, it says, do not repay evil with blessing. And so when immediately when I, when I read this, it made me think of Genesis 12 too, where, uh, where, where Abraham and God are talking about uh, the old covenant. Uh, well, at that point, it was the third covenant, probably not the old covenant, but you know what I mean, okay? And so it says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. This is God talking to Abraham, you know, the patriarch of the, the entire uh, Jewish faith, okay, for all the Israelites. And God is kind of outlining the basic construct, the basic, um, the basic approach that we should be taking towards other people. He's saying, hey, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. Which, once again, it shows that God expects us to bless other people it doesn't just stop with us in fact it goes through us god's blessings extend through us and is meant to affect the world around us which is a pretty cool thought considering that once we were useless and powerless but now we get to be instruments of god's kingdom And then if you look in, um, in verse 10 to 12, Peter gives three distinct commands about relationships with insiders. And so he says, well, first of all, he starts off with this idea of whoever would love life and see good days. So he's saying that if you like life and you want to see good days in the future, you have to come listen. That includes everybody, right? I'm pretty sure everyone here likes the idea of having a long, fulfilled life. Peter's saying this involves every single person. It doesn't matter if you're male, female, black, white. Okay, it doesn't matter if you are slave or if you're wealthy. It involves everyone. And in this, he says, keep your tongue from evil and the lips from deceitful speech. And the second part is that he says, turn from evil to good. And the third part, he says, seek peace and pursue it. 
So it's kind of hard to understand how these commands connect to relationships in the church. So in order to properly understand it, we have to really look at the first one, which is keep your tongue from evil and watch your lips, watch your speech. And whenever you start to talk about speech, immediately you should be thinking about James, okay? And so that's where I went. I went and started looking at James, see if I could make some connections. And uh, in James 3, uh, verse 9, 12, it says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Peter, in the same way as James, is stating, saying that relationships cannot contain both grace and grudge, as we talked about earlier. You can't have them simultaneously. Just like here in James, you can't have a fresh water spring and a salt water spring. You can't have it because there has to be one spring. It overflows from one source. And so when I think about, well, this helps explain why Peter's telling us that we need to turn from evil to good because as long as we have that evil aspect lingering in us, our good uh, approaches, our good, our good intentions for relationships can't exist. Right? It's undermined. And that's why he also says that we need to turn from evil to, to do good and to seek peace. I don't, I don't think Peter means to seek peace in terms of like a physical sense. Because remember, these guys are being persecuted heavily. But Peter's talking about to seek peace in a spiritual, even in a mental sense, where that conflict between good and evil doesn't exist. Because we all have that war raging inwardly. And Peter is saying that you need to make sure there is peace within that inward war. And that you're willing to submit that sinful life completely to God. Because if we want to truly embody a Christ-centered relationship with other Christians, it requires a grace-based approach where we bless others regardless of whether or not we get it in return. But also we can't have anything else lingering in the background, anything else trying to pull us back into our sinful nature. That has to be literally cut away, killed off. And as we know from verse 12 of the, uh, of the Peter scripture, that regardless of what approach you choose, whether you, you take a, a grace-based approach or a, a grudge-based approach, there's ramifications, right? God has a severe reaction no matter what. You either have God in a favorable position towards you or you have God in opposition to you. I believe it, it describes it as, uh, if you seek out peace, the eyes of the Lord will be on you and his ears will be attentive to your prayers. That's the benefit of having a grace-based relationship with people. But the danger of not doing that is that you put yourself in opposition to God. So that's my first point. Sorry for so long. Second and third point, a little bit quicker. So my second point is relationships with outsiders. And I, I'll be honest, that, that word outsiders makes me squirm a little bit. Uh, 
it just means people who are not Christians, people who are, who are not followers of Christ, right? And so let's look at verse 13 to 16. It says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asked, everyone who asked you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good, against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So point one is looking at how we deal with insiders, but now we're looking at how we deal with people who are not Christians, right? Well, immediately when I read this, I think of the fact that, well, I think of the Sermon on the Mount again in Matthew 5 verse 10, where Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I feel like this correlates very nicely with Peter's statement in verse 15, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Peter and Jesus are essentially giving the antidote to a suffering mentality. And the antidote essentially is focus on Jesus. Or at the very least, focus on the kingdom of heaven. Get your perspective correct. Okay, get your perspective on eternal things. Because we can be very narrow-sided. I mean, that's our nature. Once again, we live here. We're, we're strained by our physical selves. It's easy to get caught up in what's happening around us. But Peter's trying to help these people understand that we need to move past, move past the persecution and fixate our eyes on Christ. And I, I find it interesting that there's almost like an equation where you take anything, you add Jesus, and it becomes something like radically different. You take suffering, you add Jesus to it, and suddenly it becomes glorification. Suddenly it becomes a blessing. It becomes something completely, completely different. And then Peter tells us here in verse 15 and 16, to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have and to be gentle and respectful. So the first part, we have the content. This is what we have to be prepared for. And the second part is we have the how. I like the fact that neither is more important than the other. In my experiences, I've been a bit of a truth squisher where I will go up to people and I will try to squish them into submission with the truth. And that's not a lot of gentleness and definitely not a lot of respect. I'm sure a lot of people in depth will probably testify to that. Probably a few amens happening. But the reality is that you need both of them to happen. Right? You need that gentleness and respect in accordance with the truth as well. Because what we say, what we give is just as important as how we say it. But a really good question is, if you were in a scenario where you had to defend your faith, could you give a strong reason for your hope in Jesus? I mean, you are a disciple. You're, you're meant to have faith 
which is defining of your entire life. Every aspect of your life is meant to be submitted to God. How are you going to give everything away without a clear understanding of why? It's almost insanity not to do something, or sorry, to do something and not understand the reasons why behind it. And so that's a challenge for everyone. Like, would you be able to, if I asked you right now, what would be your reason? What would be your reason right now for being a disciple? And the second thing I would want, I would want to ask is, when was the last time you had to defend your faith? If it's been a while, then why, why aren't you defending your faith? Why are you not in positions constantly where you can defend your faith? If you're a dormant Christian that doesn't come under any conflict, then eventually you will forget why you have your faith. And you're going to start fading. I don't know how to describe You're going to start fading. So it's important to understand why, but also to put yourself into situations that allow you to defend your faith properly. Because ultimately, we as disciples, like I mentioned earlier, we are not just individualistic anymore. Okay, yes, I said it. Uh, we're not ego. We're not egocentric. We're not self-focused. We're not meant to be, at least. Okay. Suddenly, it's about a great mentality. Suddenly, our our actions impact more people than we probably even know. But the ultimately, our actions are a reflection of Christ, and that's why I feel like Peter is so strong on this idea that we have to have a reason for our faith, because. If someone's going to ask you about why you follow Christ, that's an opportunity for you to reach out. That's an opportunity for you to introduce God into somebody's life. But often we get caught with our pants down, okay? Unprepared, not prepped. You understand that we are ambassadors for Christ. And if we are not representing Christ adequately, that's not a good look. It's not a good look. And my final point is doing it God's way through Jesus. And that's in verse 17 to 22. I'll read that really quickly. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Now, after being made alive, he went and made proclamations to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, it is only a few people, eight and all, who were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism and now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now this, out of everything, out of each aspect, or the rest of the, of the, uh, of the passages, this was the one part where I'm like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do here? There's a lot of content here. I mean, it's talking about Noah, I'm like, oh my goodness, what's happening now? 
okay? It's talking about imprisoned spirits. Oh. But it's not as complicated as it first looks. There's a, there's a lot more, there's a, it's a lot simpler than I first gave it credit for. So when it says, so Peter, as he, as he did early in this chapter with the topic of submission, he brings everything back around to Jesus. And that's what's happening here in this section. He's, he's kind of tying everything up in the, um, in, the, in, in the sense that it has to connect to Jesus somehow. And because he's talking so much about suffering, he also he ties it into Jesus who has suffered the ultimate death. And he uses it as an example for other Christians to base their sufferings on. Peter is deliberately referring back to Jesus to help remind us and the Christians he's writing to who are being, who are being persecuted in these churches that Christ also suffered. It makes Christ relatable, right? Because he too, in, his, in, in, in a dark, terrible time, he suffered the ultimate price. So now that we have hard times, we can relate to our Savior. It makes him very human. And also says, uh, has a really strong uh, point where it says, Jesus suffered immeasurably, but he emerged victorious. This idea that he conquered. He suffered, he died, but he conquered. And also says that suffering has a purpose. The cool thing is, when we, when we endure suffering as Christians, we know that we are, we are identifying with a cycle that Jesus was part of, where he suffers, he dies, and he is resurrected. That's why I talked about baptisms, uh, because baptisms, the point of, of physical death, not physical death, sorry, spiritual death. Oh man, I'd be a pretty bad person, physical death. It's like this it's the idea that everything is transformed through Jesus. Our lowest lows become our highest highs. And our suffering is transformed into glorification. And death is transformed into eternal life. Which gives us the sense of hope. We have hope because of the suffering of Jesus. right? And because he rose again, he conquered death. We know that one day we will too resurrect. We, are, we, can, take, we can partake in that whole process which is an incredible feeling because suddenly it, it changes the whole landscape of our lives. Suddenly we don't, it, it's not a big deal if we die, even though it might be painful. It's not a big deal because Jesus has transformed death for us. Death is no longer has any power over us. There's a really cool quote. We've been reading a, um, oopsies, I skipped it. Yeah, there's a there's a um, a really cool quote we've been reading in this book uh, recently. I felt like um, it is called uh, the Seven Seven Godly Men or something. I don't I can't remember exactly what it is. If, if you want to know what it is, you can hit me up later. But um, some of the guys have been reading it, and there's one there's one guy in there, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he was a he was a German pastor dr during the times of of the Second World War, and he's very well known for the fact that. He conspired against Hitler and he tried to assassinate Hitler. Evidently he, he didn't succeed and he was, he was um, condemned and, 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 and put in front of a firing squad for his efforts. But he, he did this quote in the lead up to him dying. Um, and to show us a little bit of his perspective 
of how Jesus transforms death itself. And so he says, how do we know that dying is so dreadful? Who knows whether in our human fear and anguish, we are shivering and shuddering at the most glorious, heavenly blessed event in the world. Death is hell and night and cold. It is not transformed by our faith. But that is just what is so marvelous, that we can transform death. So just to conclude, my, my summary is you know, relationship with, relationships with insiders, my goodness, relationships with outsiders and doing it God's way through Jesus. And ultimately, we, in all things, we want to have a grace-based approach, <coughs> a grace-based approach to how we interact with each other. And as we go next week into, uh, as we meet up next week, I mean, uh, let's just try to have that, have that mindset where it's not about what can I get from other people, but a recognition that it doesn't matter what this person's done or what my opinion is of, the, of this person. Jesus died for me, despite all my flaws. And the same way, at the very least I could do is initiate with somebody else who I don't really like that much. Amen? So I'll just say a quick prayer and then Stefan can uh, do the closing. Close your eyes, guys, and go your heads. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I just want to thank you so much that we have uh, an example of, of what it means to suffer and, uh, and rise above it, Lord, in, in the fact that you did everything on the cross for us, Lord. And, and you purchased and redeemed us, Lord, despite all the things that we did against you, Lord. For we were sinful, Lord, and we didn't deserve anything. We were your enemies, but despite that, Lord, you redeemed us, Lord, and you brought us into your household and you gave us the rights of your sons and daughters, Lord. And we have a precious inheritance to look forward to. It is unbelievable, Lord. It's so undeserved, Lord. I pray, Lord, from this, from this passage and, and, and Peter, we can learn to approach relationships uh, with a priority sense. Uh, and uh, what I mean by, by that is we can just really focus on relationships as an important aspect of everyday life, Lord. We can really strive to, to include people, Lord, and to approach people with a, great, a grace-based mindset, Lord, and not a grudge-based mindset. I pray this all in your precious name, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.